So, we have heard in the previous episode what the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna really sounded like as narrated by Sanjaya to King Dhritarashtra. And what I really wanted to do at this point is to explain how I came to an understanding and how did I crystallize, how did I remove those verses which were not relevant to the direct conversation. However, I think it would be better if we were to go through the entire book itself and discover for ourselves how this came about. If you do want to cut short and this whole experience and read up about, um, you can always buy my book. The link's in the description and it will show you where I have jumped from one verse to the other. Now, this is chapter two of the Bhagavad Gita, traditionally known as the Yoga of Analytical Intelligence or Sankhya Yoga. But it is also essentially the Gita Upanishad. It is the first instance where the Upanishadic, the Vedantist thought, enters into the Gita. So by 500 BC, schools of learning mushroomed along the Ganga. Now, among these alternative philosophical systems were also Jainism and Buddhism. The latter would give the Brahminical systems much grief and a religious competition would arise. Buddhism and Jainism gave the common populace uh, an alternative system of deliverance and spiritual elevation that in fact eroded the economic base of the Brahminical system which had become corrupt. At this time, an internal puritanical movement occurred with support from both conscientious Brahmins as well as the Kshatriya patrons. So you know the Kshatriya princes and, and the Brahmins uh, attended the Gurukuls and sat near the teacher. And that's what the word Upanishad means. Upanishad means to sit at the feet of the master. And so they did. They sat at the feet of the master and they took down notes. They began to compile their school notes. They enjoined each other to debate philosophical concepts in an effort to promote excellence within their own ranks. And also to be able to engage with the increasingly popular Buddhist schools. Because Buddhism really put a lot of emphasis on debate of philosophical concepts. So these Vedantists who compiled the Upanishads, they challenged the ancient Vedic gods especially Indra, and their proponents sought to reform Vedic society from within. A sort of back-to-the-rishis kind of rebellion was taking place. But this challenge was not oppositional. This, this were far, they were far too wise to resort to such immature tactics. They didn't oppose the, Vedis, the Vedic uh, systems. They presented their philosophy as Vedanta, as the summum bonum, the culmination in, indeed, the, quite literally, the end of the Vedas. They replaced the Vedic concept of the social collective sacrifice of Yajna as a means of spiritual evolution with the personal sacrificial method of Yoga. Indra and all his retinue were subjugated into the higher truth, the amorphous unity of Brahman. And the Brahmins were exhorted to return to their original role of Brahman realization or self-realization. All of this was meant to purify the members of the Brahmin caste who had become addicted to wealth and opulence. It was the first Vedic reform movement. So, chapter 2 then begins with Sanjay telling how Arjuna is overwhelmed with compassion, his eyes dimming with flowing tears, 
and Madhusudan consoles him. This, in 2.2, is the first time Krishna speaks up. And he says, where in the hour of crisis has a stupefaction come upon you? It is uncivilized, causes infamy, closes the gates of heaven, Arjuna. You're a warrior, closes the gates of heaven for you. Don't take up this impotence, O Parth. It doesn't become you. Give up this petty weakness of the heart and stand up. Now, the evidence of the Vedantist's attempt at reform is found here in the second chapter. The following verses were inserted by them, starting by repetition of Arjuna's argument in the tail end of the previous chapter, especially 134. The following verses introduce the philosophy of the Vedantist by reintroducing the dilemma of the young prince and building upon it as an alternative reply to the one given by the original Krishna. Indeed, they had to continue with Krishna as their mouthpiece in order to preserve some semblance of continuity with the text. The change is subtle, but not impossible to detect. The Vedantists introduced the concept and importance of Guru. 2.4 Arjuna argued, O Badusudan, O killer of enemies, how can I, when the battle rages, send an arrow through Bhishma and Drona, who should receive my reverence? Rather would I content myself with a beggar's crust than kill these teachers of mine, these precious noble souls. To slay these masters who are my benefactors would be to stain the sweetness of life's pleasures with their blood. Nor can I say whether it were better that they conquer me, or for me to conquer them, since I would no longer care to live if I killed these sons of Dhritarashtra now standing in front of us. My heart is oppressed with pity, and my mind confused as to what my duty is. Therefore, my Lord, tell me what is best for my spiritual welfare, for I am your disciple. Please direct me, I pray. That's verse 2.7. It's very important to understand that that's the clue. For not only has he already been told what his duty is, but now he, he, he goes on to say that I'm confused as to what my duty is, therefore my Lord tell me what is better for my spiritual welfare. The spiritual welfare comes out. Now, warriors aren't so concerned with spiritual welfare. They're concerned with fighting. Who is concerned with spiritual welfare? Brahmins. It is their business deal with spirituality. And now he says, I am your disciple. Please direct me, I pray. So now, by taking on the role of a disciple, Arjuna gives Krishna the role of a guru. And he continues with this with his uh, role of uh, dissenter. For should I attain the monarchy of the visible world or over the invisible world, it would not drive away the anguish which is now paralyzing my senses. And then Sanjay comes back, by narrating that Arjuna, the conqueror of all enemies, then told Hrishikesha that he would not fight and then became silent, O king. And this is the theme that we had reached at the end of the first chapter, in verse number 46, so that now Guru Krishna may provide an alternative answer. 2.10 Thereupon Krishna, with a gracious smile, addressed him, who was so much depressed in the midst of the two armies. And Krishna is still being addressed as Rishikesha but he is now the guru in the Upanishadic tradition. So he starts his discourse on the philosophy of the Vedanta. And he says, Why grieve for those 
for whom no grief is due, yet profess wisdom. The wise grieve neither for the dead nor for the living. This is a highly philosophical concept for a battlefield, for sure. What Krishna says is essentially reprimanding his cousin. He says, And while speaking intelligent sounding words, you're talking like a fool. Because the wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. There was never a time when I was not, nor you, nor these princes were not. There will never be a time when we shall cease to be. Because we are souls. As the soul experiences in this body infancy, youth and old age, so finally it passes into another. The wise have no delusion about this. Those external relations which bring cold and heat, pain and happiness, they come and go. They are not permanent. Endure them bravely, O Prince. Essentially, he says that they arise from sense perception only. Matras parshastu konteya. Only through sense perception do they arise. Heat and cold, pleasure and pain. 2.15. The hero whose soul is unmoved by circumstance, who accepts pleasure and pain with equanimity, only he is fit for immortality. That which is not shall never be. That which is shall never cease to be. To the wise, these truths are self-evident. The spirit which pervades all that we see is imperishable. Nothing can destroy the spirit. He's talking about Brahman now. So he has now introduced the concept of Brahman. Gone are the gods. The material bodies which this eternal, indestructible, immeasurable spirit inhabits are all finite. Therefore, fight, a valiant man. So he brings back to the conversation. So don't lose track of the fact that you still have to fight. But we are talking about spirit now. We're talking about Brahman on the battlefield. Not relevant. But it's a good vector for the story itself. For the philosophy itself. He who thinks that the spirit kills and he who thinks of it as killed are both ignorant. The spirit kills not, nor is it killed. Hard to use that defense in a court of law. However, it is still philosophical. It is. It was not born, it will never die, nor once having been can it cease to be. Unborn, eternal, ever enduring, yet most ancient, the spirit dies not when the body is dead. He who knows the spirit as indestructible, immortal, unborn, always the same. How should he kill or cause to be killed? And these are some far-out arguments to be giving to a warrior, essentially setting out to kill another person, righteous or legal or whatever might be the case. However, he continues, the philosophical concept is still being expounded upon. As a man discards his threadbare robes and puts on new ones, so the spirit throws off its worn-out bodies and takes fresh ones. Weapons cleave it not, fire burns it not, water drenches it not, and wind dries it not. It is impenetrable. It can be neither drowned nor scorched nor dried. It is, it is eternal, all-pervading, unchanging, immovable, and most ancient. 
It is named the unmanifest, the unthinkable, the immutable. Therefore, knowing the spirit as such, you have no cause to grieve. Even if you think of it as constantly being born, constantly dying, even then, O oh mighty man, you still have no cause to grieve, for death is as sure for that which is born as birth is for that which is dead. Therefore grieve not for what is inevitable. So really, this is, this is his ploy. Your family is going to die anyway. Your parents, your grandfathers, they're going to die anyway one day. So you know what? Why not just do it now? But we're talking about a spirit. A spirit is the important thing here. Because he keeps coming back to the central theme of having to kill his clansmen so as not to lose track of it. And it merges very well with the overall theme that should have been the first conversation. But it's not, because we're talking about spirit here. And again, I reiterate that talking about Brahman in the third person is typical of the Vedantists or of Guru Krishna. The end and the beginning of beings is unknown. We only see the intervening formations. What is then the cause for grief? One hears of the spirit with surprise, another thinks it is marvellous, the third listens without comprehending. Thus, though many are told about it, scarcely is there one who knows it. This verse, 29th verse of the second chapter, is the most implicating one for the Vedantist incursion into the Gita. Because what is it that they're talking about here? It ref who is he talking about? Guru Krishna is now talking about the fact that there are Brahmins who have been practicing their craft for so long, yagyas to the demigods for so long, that they do not understand the concept of the spirit of Brahman. They do not understand Brahman. One hears of Brahma with surprise, of Brahman with surprise. Another thinks it is marvellous. The third listens without comprehending. And though many are told about it, scarcely is there one who knows it. So the Vedantists, they have been talking about Brahman now. They have been discussing it in their school notes. They have been talking about it. They have been telling people. We have found out that there is something more than simply making yagyas and sacrifices. It's deeper. It's what the rishis believed in. It's what they practiced. Self-realization is the goal of human life. And what is that self-realization? It's to realize that one, one's inner self is the same as the self of the universe. That is Brahman, this unifying entity that pervades everything, that controls everything from within. He is your inner controller, the immortal, as the Upanishads say. But they acknowledge the fact that the people are not getting it, man. This is a strange concept for them. Be not anxious about these armies. The spirit in man is imperishable. The Brahman, the Atman, the, the concept of the supreme spirit that pervades everything, the force as you say in that other universe, is imperishable. But now we find we are back to 231. Also consider your own duty. You never ought to hesitate to fight a righteous war. That's 
That's original. That's the original verse. This is what was inserted from 2.30 all the way back to 2.4. These verses were Vedantists' insertion. We are back to this continuing theme of fighting this righteous war. Look upon pleasure and pain, with victory and defeat, with an equal eye. That's verse 238. And you shall commit no sin. But now, in 239, Krishna jumps completely somewhere else. I have just described the fundamentals of the yoga of intelligence. No, you have not, sir. You have not described the fundamentals of the yoga of intelligence. You have just described two separate things. You have described about the spirit being imperishable. And, in a throwback to the previous original text, you have described that warriors should fight so that they can get into heaven. Nothing to do with the yoga of intelligence, so I don't know where that came from. However, it's here. And he continues, Now listen how joined to intelligence, O Partha, you will break through the bonds of all action. Now, on this path, endeavor is never wasted, nor can it ever be diminished, even a very little of its practice protects one from great danger. We are talking about the yoga of intelligence and this is, this is the real theme of the chapter because this is called the yoga of analytical intelligence. This chapter has been titled Sankhya Yoga. Sankhya has been interpreted in many ways. There is a theory of philosophical thought called Sankhya where, whereby merely the, um, the um, constituent creatures as uh, their species are counted. In fact, the word Sankhya also means to count uh, in common parlance in Hindi. Um, however, in this context, it means an analytical intelligence. And what does that mean? It is on this path that endeavor is never wasted, not on any other path. It's the, on the path of the yoga of intelligence. Because if you hone your intelligence, if you keep sharpening it, you will never be diminished. By its means, O beloved of the Kurus, the straying intellect becomes one-pointed, whereas the minds of the irresolute stray into bypaths innumerable. If you, if you focus on your intelligence, which Krishna was well aware that Arjuna knew how to do, we know from Arjuna's childhood how he had a single-pointed concentration, where he was in fact known for having single-pointed concentration. It's reminding him of it very appropriately at this point. Reminding him that the straying intellect becomes one-pointed, whereas the minds of the irresolute stray into parallel universes, which you don't, shouldn't be thinking about, and then 242 hits back at the Vedas. Only the ignorant speak in the flowery language. It is they extol the letter who extol the letter of the Vedic scriptures, saying there is nothing deeper than this. So those people, according to Krishna, who pick up the Vedas and say there is nothing deeper than this. This is it. This is the letter of the of the scriptures. This is what is written in our scriptures. This is what Smriti says, this is what Shruti says, and this is what 
is written in this flowery language, they are ignorant. So he's attacking those people who have been sticking to the letter of the law as laid down in the Vedic scriptures. Driven by their own desires, aiming to achieve heaven or good birth, resulting from karma, devising arduous and complex rites to secure their own pleasure and their own power, and their only result is rebirth. So here, here, here they've really broken through the shackles of all pretense. They're not talking about the war anymore. The Upanishadists, the Vedantists are not talking about Arjuna's dilemma anymore. Not talk, even talking about the imperishable soul. Now it's a direct attack on those Brahmins who have heretofore simply been waving the Vedas in everyone's face saying, this is written, we must do this. Thou shalt or thou shalt not as the case may be. And he, he insults them. He says that only, they are, only the ignorant speak of that. Not only that, he's exposing them. Driven by their own desires, aiming to achieve heaven or good birth, resulting from karma, karma kanda. In fact, the Vedic, there were a certain set of Vedic yagi, yagya, spiritual sacrifices, meant to um, elevate the performer of the yagya to a higher birth as a divine being or a demigod or or in failing that to be born to be reborn in in a rich uh, family or a highly educated and an opulent family and these were karmakanda sacrifices they are still available if you want to go and dig into the vedas you can find the whole karmakanda sacrifice protocol and uh, follow it if you want to if you want to achieve heaven or a good birth, or uh, in fact, just driven by your own desires. And yet he says, the only result is rebirth. Furthermore, he goes on, while their bewildered minds are absorbed with ideas of power and personal enjoyment, they cannot bring their intelligence to concentrate on one-pointedness. So, now, the Vedantic, this attack the, on the Ritviks, on the and the performers of the yagyas their minds are absorbed with ideas of power and enjoyment they're just making up things they're making up yagya protocols because they're really thinking about how they can enjoy they may not get anything tangible but the fact is that their minds are occupied with that they might be creating an elaborate rituals they might be um, aiming for special powers or benefits from the gods in the next war, if they are kshatriyas. However, he says that they cannot bring their intelligence to concentrate on one-pointedness. And that's the thing that we want to talk about. That's the, the essence of Vedantic philosophy. And then he goes on in verse 45. The Vedic scriptures tell of the three constituents of life, the qualities, the three modes of nature, of sattva and rajas and tamas, of goodness and passion and ignorance. Rise above all of them, O Arjun, above all the pairs of opposing sensations. Be steady in truth, free from worldly anxieties and centered in the self. This is what true yoga is about. This is what 
Krishna wants to do, a guru Krishna wants to do to explain the concept of self-control and, and, and arising above these descriptions that bind you. Furthermore, what is six? All the Vedas are as useful to enlighten man as is a tank in a place flooded with water. So you see, the Vedas have been associated with the Brahmins and their self-serving sacrifices. So what Krishna is really saying is that when your intelligence has been fired up, the Vedas are going to shrink in comparison to your own understanding. Now this in itself is the most brilliant thing that any spiritual guide, any mentor can give to his protege. Connect to your own intelligence. Be not swayed by, by the written letter of the law. Think for yourself and you'll be liberated. You, you will, your intelligence will be um, massively immense. And then he goes back to those Karmakanda Brahmins. And this is really for the Brahminical class who understand what they're up to. You have only the right to perform karma, but not to the fruit thereof. This has been interpreted differently, but what he's really saying is you only have the right to perform this Karmakanda sacrifice. You don't have the right to its fruits. Therefore, let not the fruit of your action be your motive, nor yet you be enamored of inaction. He's talking, in this case, to the Brahmins directly, who greedily partook of all that was sacrificed in the elaborate rituals of Karmakanda, while they neglected their prime duty of self-realization. This admonishment comes to them from the mouth of Guru Krishna. Don't be motivated by the rewards obtained by performing Yajna. Neither should you become lazy. So don't be enamored of inaction. Don't actually think that you're going to sit back and do nothing and have somebody else sponsor your yagya so that you can then get its benefits, those fine silk clothing and gold coins and, and, and cows and whatnot. Perform all your karmakanda with an equipoised mind, renouncing attachment and looking upon success and failure with an equal eye. Become equipoised. That is called yoga. So this was the Vedantic philosophy as given to all the Brahmins, dovetailing their performance of the yagyas with the inner self-control through yoga while taking away the lure of the karmakanda sacrifices. You can continue to do it. See, this is not oppositional. Vedantists were admonishing them, but they were not attacking them. You can continue to do your yagyas, just don't be attached to the fruits of those sacrifices. Don't be so self-centered. And then they continue. And then Krishna continues in 249. Karma, karma kanda, actually, is far inferior to an intellect equipoised. Have recourse then to equipoised intellect. It is only the petty-minded who work for reward. This admonishment continues. So Krishna doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, okay, you know, why? No, you, you attacking them again. When a man attains to equipoised intellect, he discards here in this world the results of good and evil alike. Prepare to skillfully conjoin all karma to yoga. That's verse 15, the second chapter. So on the one hand, he tells them, give up this petty greed. 
and petty-mindedness of doing performing yagyas for reward. And at the same time, he's saying, dovetail this into yoga. The sages, guided by equipoised intellect, renounced the fruit of action and freed from the chains of rebirth, they reached the highest bliss. Going beyond the offers of heavenly rewards that the Brahminical Krishna was suggesting, Guru Krishna now offers freedom from the cycle of rebirth itself. It's quite likely that the Buddhist philosophy had quite a stranglehold on the minds of men. And despite the offers of heaven, the fears of rebirth could only be addressed and countered by the Upanishadic philosophy. And the reason why I mentioned Buddhism now is because the next verse exemplifies what I'm trying to say, my point. Verse 52. When your reason has crossed the entanglements of delusion, then you will become indifferent both to the philosophies you have heard and those you may yet hear. It's a very empowering verse. If you're connected to your own intelligence, if you are situated with your feet on the ground, you have your common sense fully functional, then you will become indifferent. You will become immune to all that you have heard. And also any philosophies that may have yet to be invented. You, you will just, it's, it's, a, it's a profoundly atheistic concept in a sense. That Krishna is perf pursuing in this verse. When your intellect is no longer bewildered by the multiplicity of holy scripts. This is the next verse. It stands unperturbed. Then you will have achieved yoga. So the, the idea of achieving yoga is that your intellect is no longer bewildered by multiple scripts. You're not following this philosophy or that philosophy or this letter of the law. You're just connected to your own intelligence. Unperturbed. And at this point, 254, Arjun asks, O Keshav, what is the mark of one who is of steady intelligence, steady in mind, and situated in equanimity? What does he speak? How does he sit? How does he walk? Obviously, uh, we're not going back to the idea that this is uh, out of character for Arjuna in the middle of the battlefield, and that he's been swayed over to this discussion of philosophy in, in the middle of the battlefield. This is happening outside. We, let's uh, agree to that point. Um, but it's a good point because because the Vedantists needed someone to have a sounding board. And Arjuna plays that part beautifully. Guru Krishna replies in 255, When a man has given up the desires of his heart and is satisfied in the self, by the self alone, then he is called one of steady intelligence, whose mind is unruffled in suffering, whose desire is not roused by enjoyment, who is without attachment, anger or fear, is called a sage of steady intelligence, one who is attached to no desire, and achieving that state who accepts good and evil alike, neither welcoming the one nor shrinking from the other, his intellect is fixed. He who can withdraw his senses from the attraction of their objects, as the tortoise draws his limbs within its own shell, his intellect is fixed. The objects of sense turn from him who is abstemious, even the relish for them is lost in him 
who has experienced far superior things. O son of Kunti, the excited senses of even a wise man, though he be striving for perfection, impetuously carry away his mind. Then in 261 an interesting thing happens, and it's an aberration, because after telling Arjuna that even a wise man can be dissuade, so wisdom is not such a big deal, Krishna says, restraining from Restraining all senses, one must sit engaged in contemplation of me. Thus subjugating his senses, one achieved fixed consciousness. This is an addition. Because what actually he's talking about after 260 is 262. <clears throat> when a man dwells on the objects of sense, he creates an attraction for them. Krishna is explaining now, actually, Guru Krishna is explaining how the mind is carried away by the senses. When a man dwells on the objects of sense, he creates an attraction for them. Attraction develops into desire, and desire breeds anger. Anger induces delusion, delusion loss of memory. Through loss of memory, reason is shattered, and loss of reason leads to destruction. But the disciplined self, moving among sense objects with senses free from attraction and repulsion, mastered by the self, attains peace. Having attained peace, he becomes free from misery, and becoming of cheerful disposition, indeed, very quickly, he attains equilibrium. Right discrimination is not for him who cannot concentrate. Without concentration, there can be no fixity of mind, without which there can be no peace, and without peace, how can anyone expect happiness? As a ship at sea is tossed by the tempest, so the reason is carried away by the mind when preyed upon by straying senses. Therefore, O mighty armed, whose senses are detached from their objects, consider his intelligence to be steadfast. The introspective sage is awake when the world sleeps, and he ignores that for which the world lives. He attains peace, into whom desires flow as rivers into the ocean, which, though brimming with water, remains ever the same, not he whom desire carries away. He attains peace who, giving up desire, moves through the world without aspiration, possessing nothing which he can call his own, and free from pride. O Parth, this is the state of the self, the supreme spirit to which, if a man once attain, it shall never be taken from him. Even at the time of leaving the body, he will remain firmly enthroned there and will become one with the Eternal. And this is where chapter 2 ends. And, as one would expect, having read many books, that the next chapter would be chapter 3. However, we shall see that we have been in error. We will have to return to that concept in the next episode of the Rubik Gita.